Uh, good afternoon. This is the Vicious Cycle. Oh, it's good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is the Vicious Cycle standby. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Captain. You're going to go out fishing from 30 meters. Stay on Channel 12. Watch for traffic, please. Very good. This is the Vicious Cycle standing by 1 2 and 1 6. Have a good day. Thank you. You too, Captain. Thank you. Break, break. Melzy Boy. Fishing vessel right, Melzy Boy, Aloha Tower. Fishing vessel Melzy Boy, over. Captain, you're clear to go 30 to 16. Please stay on Channel 12. Watch for traffic. Roger that. Thank you very much. Oh. You're welcome, Tarkin. All right, boys. Let's go. Let's go do this. Let's go get them. Well, guys, aloha. Welcome back to the Vicious Cycle Podcast, Whiskey, Women, and Water. Uh, we just untied our lines from Honolulu Harbor. At, uh, 10.45 a.m. Hawaii time. Ah, we are supposed to get out of here last night, but we got hung up on fuel. A lot of times uh, we're a low priority compared to the big boats down here because they take thousands of gallons of fuel. And I typically only take 750 gallons out of whack. Uh, so we're definitely the, uh, the second string in that department. And then... Uh, What's really interesting about Honolulu Harbor, it's a secure harbor. So after 9-11, they basically have... Aloha Tower, fishing vessel Mariah. Here here you go, this is how this works. Fishing vessel Mariah, Aloha Tower, good morning. Good morning, we'd like to go 38-38. Okay, you're clear, 38-38. Thank you. So basically... There you go. So basically, perfect example. Basically, in our harbor, in Honolulu Harbor, we have an aircraft controller uh, type situation where you actually have permission to get in and out of the harbor, uh, even just to move dock to dock. So what he just requested was 38 to 38. Uh, He's going in uh, in my spot where I was at. Now, he was side-tied to another boat. So he is only moving about 60 feet. But even to do that legally... He's got to call the tower and ask for permission to do it. It's a little bit of craziness, honestly. I don't know why they do it. Um, I can kind of understand with some of the ships and uh, the large traffic, but it at times seems excessive. It's a huge harbor. There's a lot of lot of space, but regardless, that is the rule. So uh, we got our fuel this morning, but then unfortunately. I ended up sitting here for nearly three hours because there was uh, several barges coming in and uh, several barges heading out. So we just got to sit there and wait until uh, that commercial traffic goes through. It can be kind of frustrating at times. The people that are in the tower right now are much, much better than uh, in the past. So I think we're all pretty happy about that. They're really good about working with us. There was this one guy... I don't even know if it was really his name, but uh, his nickname was Standby Stan. Because the second you called, it was Standby. It didn't matter what you were calling about. It was always Standby. And so I don't know if there's any validity to this story or not. But the legend for years with Standby Stan was that he had lost his job as a true air traffic controller at the airport. And took his job like to that level of seriousness but he held a power trip over the fishermen 
uh, because allegedly he had lost his job for drinking on, you know, at the uh, at the airport. But supposedly the reason he started drinking. Hello, that was good. That's right. Five years. The fishing vessel Vincent Jackman two over. Here we go. Check this. In. This should be good. Princess Jackman 2, Aloha Tower. Good morning, Captain. Hi, good morning, uh, Jackman 2. You know, now stay in the Via 17. And good luck, clear out, go fishing, over. Princess Jackman 2, Captain, you're clear to go out fishing. Please go now. Go now, stay on Channel 12 and watch for traffic. Roger that. Okay, I go now. I'm um, going to stand by Channel 12. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Tower Clear. Uh, it's a lot more straightforward than it is a lot of times. So anyways, there's another fishing boat leaving. So anyways, back to Stand by Stand. So the legend of Stand by Stand says that the reason he was so hard on fishermen, and to give you examples of how hard this guy would be on fishermen, I've come to the harbor before when there's no traffic and had to wait six hours. He just like wouldn't let you in. He would say there was traffic, and then later he'd find out there wasn't any traffic. Or what had happened multiple times, as he'd put you on standby, you'd call in a few times, and he'd yell back at you, I said standby! I said standby! And uh, a couple times, to me personally, so I know it's happened to everyone else too, I would call, and uh, then I'll, I'd be, you'd wait hours and hours, and finally you'd call just to check in again for ETA, and um, he wouldn't even be there. He was off shift, but he never told the next person on shift, and there had been no traffic in the harbor so you could have gone the whole time, but he just hated fishermen so much that he never passed that along. But anyway, so the rumor or the legend of Stand by Stand is supposedly the reason he started drinking was because his wife was cheating on him with some fishermen. And so the story goes that basically, you know, his old lady's uh, mustache ride was costing the rest of us hours and hours and hours of downtime waiting around as debt for her fooling around with a fisherman. Now, whether that is true or not, I don't know, but I do love that story because that kind of is the only way that it feels justified that he would torture us just knowing that one of my brethren put the wood to his old lady somehow uh, didn't make it feel quite so bad. Now, he hasn't been there for a long time, fortunately. Um, the new people that are in the tower are fantastic, and if you call them for ETA, they give you a, like a real ETA so you're not wasting, you know, if it's gonna be hours, they'll tell you. So that way you're not wasting your time. Go out, get lunch. Sometimes there's just a ton of traffic. And it's so nice that these people uh, work with us compared to the old days where you would just have to like beg this guy, basically blow him, and you still wouldn't know if you were getting out of the harbor. So that part of the system has really improved. A couple great ladies over there. And so that part's good. But anyways, uh, heading out of the harbor. Finally out, getting out. Beautiful day. Got kind of a tight trip window here. Um gotta get back in time to hit that fourth of july uh, weekend so need to be in by no later than say friday gonna take me a day to get to the fishing grounds a day to get back so looking at having four nights and uh hopefully we'll be able to put it together our last trip was good we had a lot of volume uh not not that great on size a lot of mediums but quite a bit of weight and the market's been strong uh it did come down uh yesterday in honolulu I don't know if that was just a uh, slight influx because a bunch of boats landed or uh, a little bit of a market correction. I don't know why, but 
hopefully the prices will still stay uh, strong. They were a little bit off yesterday for some of the guys. That could have been a quality issue too. I don't really know. Um, but for the most part, overall, the uh, prices have been really good, which has been good for all parties involved, all of those of us that, uh, that fish. So, um, yeah. Oh, you know, one thing that was also really cool that I want to talk about on this last trip is I saw a Russian battleship. And uh, it came... One time I saw the ship kind of in a distance, and I was looking in the binoculars, and uh, I could tell it was a battleship, but it didn't look like the normal ones we see around here. So that was kind of interesting. And then the next time it went by, it went by really close, and uh, it was a Russian battleship. And uh, shortly thereafter, we had a jet. Uh, I got some really good pictures of it. They're on my, uh, my R5 camera that I actually loaned out. Feeling a little naked on this trip. I, I loaned the camera out to my buddy uh, who needed it for some professional work. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? He's also cleaning it for me, which is nice because, to be honest, the offshore um, conditions aren't great. And I have messy hands a lot of times, salt water and blood. So it's a really good, really good fare uh, exchange for me. But anyways, we had a couple crazy flybys with these jets that I don't know if they were our jets or russian jets but pretty intense like really hard you know like within a hundred feet kind of flyby situations and uh when i got in another boat that had been fishing out there had a similar experience with these jets um but he called the coast guard saying hey you know these jets are flying winging by us like a hundred miles you know 100 feet and i'm sure they go more than 100 miles an hour but like a hundred feet just Whoa, flying by and the coast guard said no no there's nothing like that going on there's nothing nothing to be worried about must be u.s jets or not a problem blah blah blah. Well, anyways we got in and and uh turns out it was all over kind of like the news there in fact was an issue with uh the russians have some kind of big war game situation going on around hawaii right now and they were i guess in some places they actually crossed over um, they actually crossed over into uh, U.S. water. So apparently the Russians, I don't know what they're doing. They said it was the largest war game since, uh, since the Cold War, but I guess the Russians are flexing on us a little bit. I don't know why or whatever, but it's kind of neat. I've never seen a Russian battleship uh, in our waters before, and um, so that was kind of neat. Uh, I got to swim with a whale shark. Uh, the weather was just gorgeous. Now we see whale sharks on a fairly regular basis out there compared to most people, but normally the severity of the weather is such that we don't actually get in with them. Um, also for the other reason is that most of the time when we find a whale shark, there's a tuna pile on it, a pile of big eyes. The, uh, the big eyes follow them around. They're not always right on the surface. Sometimes they're deep. It's kind of like any other fad. Um, you know, they're following them around because they're like their natural attraction to like floats them. So it's kind of like any other fad. They might not be directly under them, but a lot of times the pile is like within a quarter mile. And uh, that was the case with this pile. Um, the pile was tracking with this whale shark, but they were staying down at 60 fathoms and uh, they weren't coming up. We tried dogging on them. They weren't biting, dropping, you know, dropping down deep into them. Um, so I decided it was such a nice day. There was no current. I went for a little swim with a whale shark. It wasn't a big one per se. I, you know, um, 
It wasn't large enough where the claspers, so unless you went right underneath the whale shark, it wasn't large enough where you could determine whether it was a male or a female. I'd say it was probably only maybe an 18-footer, something like that, so not huge by any means, but still always cool, still always epic. They're a really cool creature, so that was fun. And then uh, I got back on the boat, and we followed that uh, pile slash whale shark um, around, and somewhere right around the two-mile mark, the pile finally came up, but we did have to follow uh, it around for quite a while before the fish actually came up and bit, but uh, that's always a really cool thing. Uh, probably some of you guys have fished out in Australia, out in the tuna aggregation, have seen that as well. Um, you'll go from whale shark to whale shark, and they don't all have piles, but occasionally you'll find a whale shark that's just holding a giant pile. And this is pretty neat, um, for those of you that have never seen this, generally, the rule of thumb is the larger the whale shark, the larger the fish hanging around it. And I don't know if that's actually because they kind of grow with it or just larger ones are attracted to larger, larger structure. But a lot of times you'll find that the larger the whale shark is, the uh, larger the tuna is. I remember we had one year, uh, we had this one we were calling Wally the whale shark because it was out there trip after trip and it was just a monster. And at the same time, there was two smaller ones. And the two smaller ones both had rat piles. But if you found Wally, the average ones on Wally were all like 40 to 80 pounds. I found it on two trips, and I think Gus found it on two trips. It was kind of like four trips in a row. Or maybe there might have been one trip it was missing, and then we found it on the fifth trip. I can't remember. But anyways, over across a month, a month and a half, we, uh, we had hit this, uh, you know, not hit it, but found this whale shark every trip or, every, or we might have missed one trip we didn't find it and uh but the pile that was on it was biting really good so whale sharks are not normally just a blessing for us for being able to swim with them and see them but out where we are um they usually have a pile i've also found um i've also found the uh Whale sharks inshore oftentimes have uh, tuna piles on them, if you know what you're looking for, uh, but not if they get too shallow. Like, it seems like a lot of times, once they get kind of inside of 500 fathoms, they don't have them. But I have found a really good pile uh, that we caught lots of fish on, uh, on the 800 in Kona. Uh, there was all these dive boats and everything that were just uh, diving around it. And I was coming in from offshore, and I knew, like, I, I came up to it, and I looked at the sounder, and I knew exactly what I was looking at. And uh, I still had a couple cases of Palu left over, so these people were all swimming there. And I started throwing bait, and the pile came up, and uh, I was able to top off the boat with, uh, with Ahi that, you know, the, these big guys, that people didn't even realize they were there. And uh, they floated, meaning they came up and stuck underneath the boat. And uh, I was able to catch a couple more thousand pounds right there. And then I was completely maxed on ice and drove in. So that was really cool. So I know it's not just an offshore thing. I've seen it in Australia. I've even seen it right in front of Kona. Uh, it's one of those things, though, you got to kind of be looking for it. Most people, when they see a whale shark, they just instantly think, oh, yeah, hop in the water, let's swim with it. And not so much focused on uh, the fact that there's probably tunas around there. Uh, although a lot of times they're deep. So, yeah, I mean, I remember talking to one of the dive boats that was there and they'd been swimming around the thing for like 30 minutes and they had no idea the tunas were there because they were deep enough down where they couldn't see them, uh, but 
That all changed once I started spinning circles around it and throwing Paulu. I was able to get him to come up. So, always a cool thing. Uh, I have been long overdue for some question and answer stuff. Uh, I've been meaning to do it. And part of me, to be honest, has been kind of hesitant because I have greatly upgraded uh, my audio stuff, but I haven't had a time to actually set it up. I got in from my trip uh, the day before. I dropped off in Kona, drove straight to Honolulu to load back up yesterday, and now I'm heading out now. So I never even opened the packages. I've seen that they arrived. Um, and so part of me kind of was holding off. Um, got some stuff I think you guys are gonna think is really cool coming up with streaming and video and just taking it. I'm gonna go full in and see where it goes. Um, maybe no one cares. Maybe we really, um, I think I think some of the fishermen out there and people that are interested in learning kind of some new stuff are gonna enjoy it because with the video aspect, we're gonna be really able to show people what we're talking about, associating some video clips with the kind of stuff we're talking about. Um, also being able to show people different things about the lures uh, when we're talking about a cup face what that means or a scoop face and you know we we're able to actually show people what we're talking about and I think that's gonna up the experience uh, for a lot of people um, also it's just great you know you, you, you know you have these different personalities that you'll be able to put a face to um, if you're interested my older uh, podcast will also be going online on YouTube uh, just so there's a place where um, you can see them uh, they won't be too technically advanced but they'll be there uh, with some accompanying videos uh, to try and give people a feel of what's going on and then I think you're gonna see somewhere around mid-July or definitely by the end of July um, I'm, I'm hoping that when you look at the podcast you'll be like oh that's a really professionally grade uh, podcast um, because I uh, decided to kind of go all in and uh, hopefully the new equipment will be able to up that quality um, in a lot of ways. Uh, any of you guys have been listening probably heard early on there's a lot of kind of audio issues and I'm learning. I mean, I'll be the first to admit I'm learning. Um, I have no previous background in interviewing or anything and I'm learning a lot about, uh, you know, spacing and timing. Uh, doing my best not to walk on people and vice versa there's a gap in there there's definitely an art to it so the people that are really good at it I give them a lot of credit it's like anything uh, there is a lot more work involved when you want to take anything to the next level than most people realize it's not so cut and dry um, so yeah so let's get into some questions uh, first thing we're gonna do right now is we're gonna try doing a voicemail I got this voicemail a while ago and um, I've never done it. So let's hope this works. Uh, let's see how it goes. Hey, Captain K. This is Captain Dana from Instagram. Uh, regarding your uh, interview with Joe Dittmer, he uh, mentioned he had an ozone machine on his boat. And I was wondering if you had one, if that was um, standard in your industry. I don't know of any boats here in Florida that have one or fish house does um and also um is there anything on your boat that um that sets you apart or that you're uh, very proud of obviously other than the entire boat i know you've just redone the whole thing pretty much but um just kind of wanted to see um what uh made you proud about your boat and um get well soon buddy tight lines man
Capdano. Well, some pretty good questions there. Um, ozone. No, I don't have an ice machine on my boat currently. Uh, that's something I go back and forth about. On one hand, uh, they are awesome, and um, but they also come with their own set of problems. Uh, you know, that's one more highly temperamental thing in the tropics that you're constantly repairing. Um, the other thing is they're not free to operate per se either. So kind of roughly when I looked at it with the price of fuel, so here's my scenario, right? I go to Honolulu every week to get ice bait and fuel versus Kona uh, because it's such a major savings. Um, if I was gonna get the same amount of ice in Kona that I get in Honolulu, which I can't, it would be roughly $7,500 per trip. Instead, it's uh, about 860 bucks to 920 bucks a week. So uh, it's well worth my time to drive. The other thing is Kona has such a fixed market that uh, right now when I checked this morning, uh, fuel is a dollar, I think 12 more a gallon um, to get over there. So let's say that I don't go to Honolulu to get ice. Well, then I'm gonna be burning my fuel because there's no electrical plugins over there for me to hook the ice machine up to, well, like a three phase. So you have to run your, your engine. And my friend that, uh, that does the same thing basically burns $450 a week in fuel. So he's got, uh, you know, $450 worth of, you know, fuel plus that wear and tear plus the maintenance and all the headaches that come with an ice machine um, whereas me just coming and spraying 26,000 pounds of ice in Honolulu without all those other potentially uh, headaches is really pretty drama free so for the most part I have just um, I have just stuck with that as my uh, policy uh, as for ozone, uh, formally no, but yes, the uh, the ice house in Honolulu does uh, now have uh, ozone. Um, they they are a huge ice company, uh, and it does seem to make a difference. Uh, you have a very sanitary, like nice smell uh, to it. Um, I think it probably really does help the overall bacteria um, with the fish. Uh, the ice houses in Honolulu, uh, Honolulu have that, um, but not on the Big Island. Um, most of that is made with non-potable water, and so uh, the ice that they make for the boats, uh, you couldn't uh, actually consume. They've got, they've got more. They've got, they've got ice for the drinks, which is different, and then they've got the the ice that they make for the fishing boats um, is non-potable, so you're not supposed to to drink it. Um, you asked the question about what am I proud about my boat? Well, honestly, I'm very proud of my boat. And I think, uh, most, I think most boat owners are, um, unless you're some kind of weekend warrior or something. And it's just some tub of shit that you keep in your backyard or, you know, something like that. I think most boat owners that live the life of fishing are really proud of their boats. Um, I think one thing I'm really proud of is that I have a boat. I'm very proud that I was able to work my way back into getting a boat after losing my last boat and surviving a divorce and keeping my credit up. I mean, that, that's something they don't really teach you in school. It's just how important uh, maintaining your credit is to do uh, big picture dreams and things like that. Um, for the most part, 
getting large amounts of money is it's not easy to get big lump sum of money and so uh, the fact that I've been able to maintain my credit and um, been able to get another boat and have a boat loan um, I'm really proud of that um, I'm proud that uh, my my boat supports my family I'm proud that my boat supports other crew member family I'm really proud that my boat supports um, a legion of people back on land you know uh, multiple fish houses roadside sellers dryers uh, you know I've got people that you know move thousands of pounds of fish uh, back on on land and uh, a couple of those guys uh, they make a big portion of their living uh, from fish that come off our boat so I'm really proud of that that that's a good feeling I, I like the fact that my passion is uh, not only supporting me um, but also supporting other people that I care about and um, other people that I enjoy working with I work with some really good people back on land and um, yeah I mean I think people would be surprised uh, just how much fish how, how many different places restaurants I mean if you think about how many people's you know their great meal they've had on vacation or their honeymoon or uh, you know we're very popular during graduation times when people need fish um, this year was a little bit different during COVID but um, uh, you know I, I think a lot of people would be surprised that just how important fish is to the community so I'm really proud of that I, I hope that uh, I hope that answers uh, your question um, yeah I'm proud of my boat. I think most boat owners are really proud of my boat uh, of their boats. So that would, you know, those would all be those points. Uh, I'm proud of the people it helps. I'm proud of the people it feeds, and uh, it makes me happy. I'm doing what I love, and so I'd say those are all a win. I got a great question here, and this one is personal. When someone sends me a question, of course there are always going to be different levels of personal opinion but the question I had was what do you run your strike drag at for Marlin and and my best example on that and this is one of those things I always talk about is that luck is when preparation meets opportunity so over the years from my experimentation fishing different places um, my opinion is that your strike drag, so where your lever drag is on the bike, I like to see, and I'm going to just talk about 130, and you can take this math, and it, and it translates to lighter line as well, but I like to see my strike at 30% of the braking strength. So basically, that means I'm going to have strike at 39 pounds, and the reason that I have it at that height is my thought process is sometimes you will never get a second shot to penetrate the hook and so I want that hook either in I want my best shot at driving that hook home on the bike as possible um, because sometimes you'll see like where they're hooked they're you know they're hooked like in really hard spots where you would never get that punctuation like you know that that puncture let's say like on a middle of its bill or further back in its bill until you get closer to the base. Now, when you get further back into the base in the mouth, you'd be surprised how little pressure 
uh, it actually takes to drive a hook. And one really fun project to do this, and if you've never killed a marlin or you don't have one on a deck, it would be hard to duplicate this. But one thing that I've done over the years is I've literally just taken a hook and put it on a drag scale, and I've stuck a hook just about anywhere you can imagine into a marlin's mouth. And the further you get back, especially the soft tissue, you will see that you can get a hook like as little as seven pounds. You can bury a hook very deeply when you're talking soft tissue, right? That, that, that's not a problem. But as you get further out into its mouth and further out towards the end of its face, and a lot of times they're very billy, it takes a lot. And now there are places where my experience is with a typical drag, you can't even bury the hook on that. There are parts of the bill that go in excess of 39 pounds, so you can't even drive a hook in. So that just goes to show you that no matter what the scenario is, um, unless you're gonna go even some more obscene amount of weight on the bite, there are certain areas you just won't get a hook in no matter what you do. But I like 39 pounds, and I'll, and I'll tell you why I like 39 pounds, is that the vast majority of the locations on a big fish, you will get the hook buried. Now, the smaller the fish, the easier it is to bury the hook. So, what I'm saying for the most part is I'm talking about fish that are over four or 500 pounds, um, and that, you know, most of the time, let's talk tournaments or something like that, that's where your money fish is. So I'm talking about fish that count. I'm not just talking about uh, tag and release. I'm talking about burying a hook that I'm gonna be bummed about missing. Okay, now, unquestionably, you can get a hook into a fish's mouth with way less drag. I'm not even gonna argue that for a second, but there are definitely locations that you cannot puncture. And a big section of that upper part of its face, you can't puncture with under like say 36 pounds. I maybe have too much time on my hands. It could be because a lot of times when I'm out at sea, I've got long commutes home and I'll just, I've spent hours just doing this and trying it and not just even on the same fish, multiple fish. I've done it with black marlin, blue marlin. I've always tried to really think about, okay, what can I do to improve this, improve that, you know? And everything I'm telling you involves, again, doing the prep work. You need to scale your drags right so the other part of this gentleman's question which i didn't read uh, all the way out was that at what point would you back it off and this is a great question when you're talking that much drag okay so a big fish will take 39 pounds like it's a champ that may sound like a lot of weight but to a big fish that's not much drag at all that's the misconception a lot of people have 130 can easily handle that where I will immediately back my drag off are in two scenarios, okay? And I will have a back off point, which I call the oh shit mark. And that is at 12% of my line's breaking strength. Or on 130, I have basically 15.6 pounds. And the reason that I will have that point, that, 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 that section, is because A, if I get a rat, meaning a small marlin on the line, I'm gonna immediately back that drag off. If I see that I'm back flipping, you don't wanna back flip a fish over. That is not good for keeping them on the line. You wanna keep them in the water. So I'll have that initial strike and then I like to back it down to my oh shit mark 
if, it, if it's back flipping over the fish, okay? The other scenario, and this is where lots of fish get broken off, and what a lot of people don't understand is that, let's say you got her on, you got a freight train and it's absolutely screaming out line, okay? Once you get past 50% of your spool's capacity, what you initially used on a drag scale doesn't matter because the belly in the line Spirit that the marlin pulls out is in excess of in excess of the actual breaking strength. And so in order to avoid cracking off a fish on that first insane run, you need to back the drag off to somewhere to around 12% or even maybe 10% to counter the belly. That's why you also shouldn't have any fear when someone says, oh man, it's got so much line out. Well, you really shouldn't fear having that much line out because the drag on the line can put more drag on the fish to slow it down than you can with an angler. So you don't need to worry, like when people, keep it tight, keep it tight, keep it tight. If a fish has hundreds of yards of line out, that fish has way more drag on it from the line than the drag setting that's actually on your reel. So I don't fear that. Where I fear more about keeping the line tight, keeping it, is as you get closer, that is when it's more important because you eliminate the value of the belly that's holding the hook in the line. Especially as you get hundreds of yards of line out, you would be amazed at the amount of pressure. Those stories in Cone and other places are endless. So you wanna have the initial drag up, but once you get, I would say past 50% of the line capacity, I wanna be down around 12%. I may even take it down a little bit faster than that if it's one of those absolute fucking going off the rails like going away. You can see the fish is jumping, going away as fast as they go and the reel is just I'll back the drag off, and then I'll wait until it settles down. And most of the time, it does settle down, right? Um, if I have never been spooled, knock on wood, thank goodness. Um, but there are definitely times, and it, part of it's because I've had so many great teachers that basically what you need to do when you're in that situation is you just need to turn and chase or as hard as you can reverse. Most of the time, turning and chasing because you can get on a fish much faster. If you have that fish of a lifetime on, you just have got to fucking go. Especially in the beginning, what you retrieve, it's all about surviving that initial run. So many people will tell you that. It's all about that initial run. And then once the fish settles, you can increase that drag. And it's really once it slows down. Like I have no problem going back up to strike drag once that fish has settled down and then quickly, you know, within 20 minutes, if, if it's a proper big fish, I have no problem within 20 minutes of smashing that drag to sunset. They can take a lot of heat. The fish can take more heat than 99% of the anglers. Um, I have found over the years hopping around kind of from boat to boat a lot of people are scared of drag you don't need to be scared of that drag you would be amazed what the equipment can take if you're not knots are tied properly your crimps are proper you can take so much more abuse 
than, than, than you would think. If your line is not chafed up, 130 is an animal. Um, I mean, the great proving grounds for this is Australia. I think most people, after they go to the Great Barrier Reef and they see fish getting struck on 45 pounds of drag and just, or they see a fish hitting, being hit with drag, like full smoke within minutes, it really goes to teach you and show you what you can do with drag. I think most people, if they've never spent that much time with big fish, uh, they're, they're really gun shy. I mean, I have fished with some guys where they fish with such light drag. Uh, it, it, it's scary. And I'm not talking about the bite because there's another theory on that that I don't subscribe to, but I know some people that do really well. Some people fish an extremely light drag with the idea that the fish is gonna get so much line off the reel that again, the belly is gonna be what's responsible for getting the hook in. Uh, I don't particularly like that style because what happens is a lot of times, uh, the fish, yeah, it'll be great, jumps all over the place, but it never had enough initial pressure to bury the hook and then it comes off. So I don't subscribe to that. I'd rather have the fish come off right away and possibly get another shot out of it. Like, okay, it pulls off its nose and then hopefully it blows up onto something with a more committed bite. So that is my theory on that. Um, there's a question here. It says, why do people fish out of a rod holder? Well, there's two questions. There's, there's more than one reason for that. But one, a lot of people don't really know how to angle properly. Uh, you'll see that in... Um, in, in modern day charter boats it actually always bums me out uh, when I see the deckhand with the rod on the back or you know the Portuguese pumping it or even guiding the line for the customer to me that's a super bummer and the main reason for that is I feel like that's a disconnect of the deckhand not doing their job a lot of times in big game fishing you don't catch fish but that doesn't mean you shouldn't give the people a proper rundown before every trip. And when I'm working the deck, if I'm a, uh, you know, if I'm, whether I'm the captain or I am the deckhand, my rundown is probably longer than most people. And maybe I'm a little bit old school, but you know, most of my rundown is 20, 25 minutes for an angler who's never, uh, never been in the chair. And part of that is because A, that may be the only opportunity you have to bond with the customer they feel like they've got the best opportunity, you're educating them, and that may be the only chance you get really on a day where maybe you're not gonna get a bite because that's marlin fishing. The other thing is, is that if you get the fish of your lifetime on, it's gonna be very hectic at the initial bite. And so you wanna give the people as much of an opportunity to survive that as possible. The other thing is, look, it is so much more meaningful for a person when they do something the right way. That's why I'm such a big, big, big promoter of teaching people and taking the time in the chair to really learn it the right way. This is one of those things that I saw this always with charter fishing, but also when I was giving archery lessons, that for the most part, uh, female anglers were the best first time anglers. And that was because they were willing to listen uh, to technique over just uh, trying to manhandle it. A lot of men would have this preconceived idea of how they're just going to crank on this big fish and they completely blow themselves out. And before you know it, even sometimes 
he would have a professional football player where his cheerleading girlfriend would finish off the fish because it's not about just overpowering a big fish with your arms it's about your legs and your technique and where I really learned this to the next level is I did years of uh, junior angler world record fishing with a, a young man named Alex Johnson he's got a whole bunch of world records now Alex was probably 70 pounds at, when I first started fishing with him soaking wet but he's the best angler I've ever seen period period best angler I've ever fished with because his technique was flawless he learned from awesome people he learned from JP uh, Rhett Bailey he learned from Peter Bree Wright he learned uh, Billy Bilson all these older legendary fishermen in cans took the time to give him tips his father Graham Johnson they he really learned the technique and so despite at times him being you know his physical weight being less than half the amount of drag he had on the fish he had such a great technique with the pendulum he could kick these fish's ass i see this with women women have really strong legs and they have determination and i don't know if this goes back to their incredible ability to endure pain physically because of giving birth i know there's a lot of egotistical males out there listening to this like yeah right come on but the truth is a lot of these women could just really take the pain of these uncomfortable situations better than men i have never ever 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 seen a fraction of women quit compared to the amount of men who quit in the chair it's not even close women consistently consistently will do a better job particularly in the beginning when they're learning how to fight these big fish they just don't have that quit in them which is really impressive like i i i say this all the time my favorite people to take fishing are women and children one because you know their attitudes are usually really great uh, and two because they want to learn and they want to listen um as you get up into that upper drag it can be difficult but again technique can outweigh uh technique can outweigh your physical size and so um that's one reason uh people fight fish out of the covering boards is because uh they just don't they've never been taught the tech right technique or someone hasn't taken the time to teach them the right technique uh the other reason you see people fighting fish out of covering boards it's just easier like commercial fishing the reason we fight them out of the covering board <laughs> the rod holder is an awesome angler it can take way more heat than the average person and it can take it from the get-go the rod the rod you know the rod holder doesn't get tired so if you're in a commercial application and you're not in a tournament and you're not worried about um you know you're not worried about pride or you know trying to do stuff a traditional way you know like it goes back to world records you know most of the fish giant fish you see they they don't they're not a world record because most people don't care about the details uh they don't that's not on their page in the first place so that's fine uh those kind of rules those angling rules are only for people who care but my own thing and it's not so much about world records and it's not so much uh, it, it's just about trying to keep a tradition alive. And I just feel like really taking the time to educate people is the best thing you can do uh, as a deckhand um, to give those people the ultimate experience and give those people, they want to come back. Let's keep it going. Let's keep the prestige going. You know, like you can take a first time angler and make them a great angler if you're willing 
to devote the time to it. Um, sure, sometimes you get an asshole that it doesn't matter what you say, they'll forget everything. And then sometimes you'll have people that will panic and they'll forget everything you say. But that being said, the vast majority of the time, the effort that you put into training the customer and bonding with the customer pays out for a better experience, which ultimately uh, maybe grows a great customer. Uh, it grows a relationship where you guys go fishing in other places, you do other things. Um, they come back and repeat clients. Or even if nothing else, you carry on their passion and they had a good time, they appreciated, even if they didn't get a bite, they appreciated that you put that effort in and they'll share that with other people, their friends, and they'll come with you. Ultimately, the more love and attention you put into keeping um, the traditions alive and doing things the right way, it will pay x-fold. I mean, I still have customers, I'm primarily a commercial fisherman. And I still have customers from 20 years ago that I routinely talk to because I've always tried to give them everything I have. And it's been a learning curve for me. I still learn, you know, I still learn all the time. Um, if there's a better way, I want to try and learn it. So uh, I'm not saying that there aren't room to learn, but I think there is so much space from what I see on social media, so much space to improve the customer experience. Uh, nothing is better than when you see an angler fighting a fish properly uh, without the deckhand helping. You, that that moment, you know that the crew took the time uh, to go through and really teach them the right way. I mean, I, I think that looks great. And it looks better on the people, it looks better on the operation without a doubt. So, um, probably enough of my rant on that. Uh, Blue88 asks, do I have any cracking stories? Also note, he enjoys the drinking stories. Well, I think we all enjoy the drinking stories, so thank you, Blue-88. Uh, I think that kind of goes with the territory, although I haven't really been drinking much lately because I've been very busy. And when I'm fishing, I don't drink offshore. And when I'm going nonstop, I don't drink. I think, honestly, I haven't had a drink. It might be, oh, I had my kids before that. I don't drink when I have my kids either. I might not have had a drink for three weeks, something like that, but uh, all the same, I'm sure I will again, uh, seeing that we're coming up into tournament time next week, I'm sure that will happen. He asked if I have any Kraken stories. Well, I don't have any mythical type Kraken stories, but I have found a uh, giant squid before. Um, I believe I've told that story on the podcast. I, I did find a, a, a dead uh, giant squid one time. And uh, there was a reward thing all over the place, giant squid, giant squid. And when we finally got one, I called the guy. The guy was away on vacation. The thing stunk to high hell. And so we ended up uh, throwing it in the harbor back in the day before you weren't allowed to throw fish in the harbor. And I have never seen more turtles in my life uh, come around in the harbor. They loved it. There was as many turtles as probably as there is on the Kona Coast. I don't know how they got the word, but they just ate that thing until there was nothing left. Apparently, giant squid is just like the turtle's favorite thing to eat. Um, I don't know if this justifies as a kraken story, but I did see a squid, which I guess is like a mesoica, which is kind of like a squid like in between. I saw a squid one night that came in the lights that must have been probably 11 to 13 feet long. That was really cool. Um, I couldn't catch it. 
Uh, it was a big problem. It kept coming in and chasing away the uh, regular size Ica, the regular size squid we catch. Um, eventually it left, but we couldn't catch a squid for a long time because every time we get a squid in the light, this thing would come in and um, it would grab it. So that's as close as I've ever come to seeing a live one. I've never seen like a live proper giant squid, but I've seen like a live like 11 to 13 foot squid, but not not no 40 or 50 or 100 footers or anything like that we see arrow squid which are pretty cool i've caught them like up to we didn't register it the state record i think was like 29 or 30 pounds i've sold a couple on the auction that were like 23 to 29 pounds but one night we uh we caught a 42 pounder that we gaffed i know a few other people they've never registered it for the state record or anything but I know some other people that have gaffed ones that are kind of like in the 40 pound range. They typically sell for like four to six dollars, but um, sometimes I just strip them up for bait depending on the situation. They make a really good hook bait for Ikashibi um, that the, uh, the tunas love to eat them. Most of the ones we catch are like eight to 12 pounds and they're almost always in pairs for whatever reason. And um, Half of the big ones I've ever caught have been on a rubber Moldcraft squid at night, like a dangler. We leave a dangler out at night um, when we're Ikashibi fishing um, because occasionally we will have a tuna blow up and eat that, and it's a freebie. Uh, sometimes it works really well. But, uh, yeah, half the big ones I've ever caught have actually been, uh, they came up and grabbed uh, that white squid, and we caught them that way, just gaffed them. But most of those, like I said, they've been under 20 pounds. They're usually like eight to 13 pounds. Uh, Ryan Nishi, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. I am not great with names, if you've probably noticed. N-I-S-H-I asked if I had any secret recipes. Well, nothing too secret, I suppose. Um, I, I like pokes and um, make a bunch of different ceviches. Nothing super top secret in that department. Um, that stuff's going to be easy to show you uh, coming up with the new podcast rather than just kind of explain recipes. Um, I'll just do them out one day uh, since I'll have the video streaming and everything. You'll be able to check it out. He also asked, what was my longest dry spell? I'm assuming that he's talking about fishing, but if he's talking about pussy, I think that's like most men called marriage. No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, longest dry spell. I'm assuming he's talking about fishing. Well, my longest dry spell definitely, definitely uh, came uh, years ago, and this is in my book. Uh, I had someone tamper with my fuel and my engines. They spiked my engines with muriatic acid, and I had just put in new engines. And so I didn't go offshore for like three and a half months dealing with uh, insurance companies and getting new engines and... You know, because the motors I had, I'd only done a couple trips. And then what happened is the muriatic acid went through the fuel system, ate through its filter, and it blew off an injector tip. And the injector tip went through the head of my engine. And so that was heartbreaking. But anyone read my book also knows that was perfect karma for whoever was watching. It set my fishing into the absolute best calibration possible. And I had my biggest year ever following that. After that, I just could not lose. I, I had just an incredible run. I had my biggest trips ever. I had uh, my two biggest trips ever back to back in a week. And uh, 
yeah, the run continued. I did like a shocking like 22 trips in a row where uh, every one of them was over 20 grand, which at the time was amazing because we would hope for like 13 or 14 grand was not great, but it was a good trip. I mean, if you got 14 grand, you'd be like, well, not the end of the world. We all made a little bit of money, but uh, yeah, we. That was uh, my longest dry spell leading up to that. Is I was not fishing offshore. I was dealing with that. Um, again, if you're asking about women, <laughs> get married and you'll learn about a dry streak. Let's see. Um, anything other specifically I learned for tuna besides blue line? Well, man, I'm not even sure that I could start. My whole life has been studying uh, fish and the relationship to fishing. Um, other things about specifically the tuna, you know the one thing I harp on everybody is just keep experimenting. If you think you know it all, you, you, you don't because things are forever changing. That's why new things come out. I've got a house below my house, like a storage unit full of ideas that didn't work out. And, uh, but the couple that have have really paid off, so don't stop trying new things have your traditional base of things and don't be afraid to try new things. What do you have to lose? I mean, uh, I, I, it's probably harder the less days you spend on uh, the water. You just want to have steady things because you think, oh man, I have, my time is so limited, but I spend so much time offshore. I'm always trying new things and some of them work out great and some of them don't. I think uh, it's just effort, try new things. And, uh, you know, have your steady standbys, but have, don't be afraid to experiment. You know, everything, everything that you use today was invented by somebody at some other point. So somebody had to go out on a limb to try something. So there's no fear in you trying new things now. You may be on to the next, you know, you may invent the next green stick or the next wobbler board or Whatever it may be, you might be inventing it. So don't be afraid to try new things all the time. Um, there's no shame in it. Everybody should be trying new things. Uh, and that's, you know, fish get conditioned. So sometimes that new thing is exactly what it takes. I mean, one of the hottest lures around, around the buoys and stuff in Hawaii is, is a plastic bag. They put a, a plastic bag on a hook. Now, if you had told me years ago that that would be something that caught so many fish, I would be like, you're joking, right? But particularly like one style, and they use different style plastic bags, uh, like these smaller plastic bags, they work remarkably well. And I don't know if that's because they look like jellyfish or they have that action, or they look more like um, some of the small things you find in their stomachs. But yeah, plastic bag on the hook. Who would have ever guessed that would be so effective? Um, let's see. James asks, are all the new lure makers just copycats? I don't think so. I think you, there's some really uh, innovative things out there. I also think when you say are there copycats, uh, sometimes imitation is the greatest form of flattery. There's only so many shapes, right? There's only so many things and there's so many styles that sell that people want and everyone kind of has their slight take on it. I don't think it's a copycat thing so much. I would I would think it's more of a form of flattery personally. Yes, I think especially during COVID, everybody and their brother became a lure maker, but there have always been great lure makers and, I, and you see a lot of exciting and new stuff uh, around. Um, so no, I, I don't think 
all the new lure makers are just copycats. I think they're people that want to try their hands at making lures and the fact that you want to craft and uh, design your own lure, I think that's very admirable. I think that's really cool. That's somebody that's devoted to the next step versus just grabbing a lure off the shelf and going. I think that is, uh, I think that's very cool. I think that goes back to kind of the last conversation I was having about experimenting and trying new things. I think a lot of us have seen the new fish heads and things like that that are out there and takes and spins on old things. Uh, I think that stuff is very cool. Um, so no, I don't think all the new lures are copycats. I think on a certain level, there are only so many things that run the way our eye believes them sh should, that we think they should, and that's why you find that. You ask everyone else, but how do you deal with haters? Well, you know, one of the reasons I ask everyone else is because that's something I haven't always necessarily been great at. Not because I ever fire back like, oh, fuck you. Not that I haven't thought it and things like that. It's just that I've always tried to maintain a professional approach on all that stuff because, you know, most of those comments, you, you just don't... Who wants to get into a conversation with somebody? If somebody's coming out of your way in the first place to say something negative about what you're doing, it's like, how, how low is their perspective uh, in the first place? Like, how miserable is their life where they've gone out of their way to put someone down? So for the most part... I don't really deal with the haters. I, I, I try to be very professional. And there's uh, there's a couple people I've uh, you know that don't particularly like me. Um, they don't have the same uh, viewpoint or ethics on um, you know fishing, and that's fine. I'm not going to get along with everybody. I'm totally okay with that. But you know I've tried to talk to them a couple times, and you know after a couple times you realize a conversation just isn't going anywhere and. Especially if somebody's threatening you. Like, oh, come on. I've had this one guy who'll just tell me, oh, my fish aren't welcomed on the island and all this stuff. And I think to myself, it's such a closed, such a, such a closed train of thought, you know. Especially, like, the mainland U.S. has gotten over 90% of our fish are either farm-raised or imported. Hawaii is, a, is better, you know, maybe around 76% is imported. But it's still the vast majority is imported. So to say that, you know, one boat is affecting the market when 76% of what we're dealing with is imports is just ludicrous. So, and I'm sure that's a little bit of kind of hating on you there. Um, one thing, a lot of times, we'll, 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 we catch a lot of small and mid-range fish and we'll have a lot of people kind of hate on that. But one thing I've learned over the years is that it's not that we catch so many of them. It's that they don't catch so many of them. Because those same people aren't throwing that size fish back. Those same people, if they catch a 30 or 40 pounder, they're not letting that fish go. If they catch a 25 pounder or even teens, they're not letting those fish go either. What they don't like is that we catch so many of them. It's not that they wouldn't keep them. It's that they don't have the opportunity or they haven't presented themselves the opportunity. Because... Those same people that will hate on you for keeping all those small fish are the people that will keep those fish the moment they're given that opportunity around a buoy or a net or something they find in that situation. So really, it's not so much that we catch so many, it's more that they're not catching. So I think for people that are dealing with, with haters, it's kind of even like catch and release with Marlin. Here's a great thing I've noticed over the years, right? Most people like the idea of other people letting go a huge marlin 
more than they like the idea of doing it themselves. I have watched that for years in charter fishing. Most people will say, man, why didn't they let that thousand pounder go? But then when they're given that opportunity, they're hanging that on the scale because it was a special fish. Or those same people that will keep a grander will give somebody a hard time about keeping a hundred pounder to feed their family. There are some huge double standards which just go to show that you'll never make everybody happy. And so I think as long as what you're doing is morally okay with you, uh, it's your freedom of choice, you just can't listen to those people. And, um, you know, you try to be nice, you try to be polite. If they take it to the next level and they're rude and um, or aggressive, well, then you just, you know, you're not going to get any further with those people. And... For example, on Instagram, with that one gentleman who starts to enjoy to threaten me, I just blocked him, and I've never given him a second thought since, and continue to happily drop my fish off on the big island. How are things in Hawaii with COVID? Uh, well, I spend most of my life offshore, but when I come back to land, uh, I would say it seems like we're cranking along. Uh, the biggest problem I see continuing with COVID is that there still appears to be too much free money being given around because everyone I know that wants and needs employees can't get them because people don't want to work still. Uh, it started to affect my life a little bit with uh, fish houses and stuff uh, and even the auction. They can't get people to work because there's just still too much free money hanging around. So um, I would say, and I think all the small business owners I know would say the same thing, is that the work is here, but the workers are not. So um, I would say that's the biggest effect on Hawaii right now with COVID, less so with cases. I couldn't talk to you about that, but I could tell you about the, the physical working aspect that it is definitely, um, definitely, uh, definitely noticeable that there is work but people who don't want to work. So I think until that free money goes away, I think all the businesses are going to be kind of jammed up uh, because you just can't get people to work. So that's the biggest thing I notice. Uh, the, the infrastructure that is screwed up, it's not because there aren't tourists here. It's not because uh, there aren't people that want to spend money because Hawaii is booming again. But it's more so that you can't find people that want to fill those positions. Uh, as far as outbreaks and stuff, again, I... I don't really know. I heard like 60% of the state is vaccinated. And when it gets to 70, they're going to open everything back up. But I'm not the guy to talk about that. The only thing I notice in my life is that uh, the only thing I really notice in my life is that people are uh, people need workers. So let's see. I got another one where the name just says Instagram user. Have I seen any mystical creatures, mermaids, UFOs, krakens? Uh, and this, he says, this might be something you don't want to talk about on your podcast. Maybe this is just something you talk about with your buddies when you're drinking late at night. I read a thing on Reddit that another fisherman saw a lizard man. Well, I don't know. I have never seen a lizard man, but there used to be a hooker, uh, that was known as the lizard lady that hung around the pier uh, because of her skin, this really gnarly chick that uh, was basically the equivalent of like a lot lizard 
And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, like a lock wizard is like a is like a hooker that uh, I guess I don't know if they just you know they work the parking lots for like crossroad truckers. Basically, uh, the lizard lady was this uh, was this hooker that would hang around the pier. She was just filthy, like just absolutely gnarly. But she was in the uh, the price range of the the, the crew, and. Um, yeah, that's the only... I've seen a lizard woman, and it wasn't pretty, trust me. But she wasn't a mythical beast or anything. She was just gnarly. Uh, so I have seen a lizard woman. Uh, not to be confused with Aku Girl, who is probably the most legendary of all hookers that hung around the pier. Uh, that was a woman with this like old Monte Carlo car that had a uh, cooler in the back. And... Uh, she would give blowjobs for an Aku. And I have the most ridiculous story ever that the editors had to keep out of the book uh, on this one, but I think we'll go into the next book. They said it was wildly inappropriate, so I'll, I'll spare that now. But, it, it, but the long and the short, without going into the details of the story that's definitely book-worthy, is that, you know, before I ever had foreign crew, we would just sell all the Akus. And... Uh, but then, when I got foreign crew, they would always want to keep an Aku to eat or whatever. Oh, yeah, and then we'll get a big Aku. They'd be really excited about an Aku. For those of you that don't know, an Aku, so Aku Girl, it's a, a, like a, a, a striped tuna or skipjack, where they call it in a lot of places. Well, my the crew would be all excited to get these skipjack tunas. And I would think, like, oh, okay, right on. They want to eat them. But then they would, like, scurry off. And then I thought, then I had learned. And she's not there anymore now because they, they, they traded out the old um, the ice plant the old ice plant had an alleyway and this girl had set up like an assembly line she had this Monte Carlo with a with like a uh, sometimes it had a cooler and sometimes it didn't and she would have the person take the Aku and they would put it in the Aku then they would walk into the ice plant they could get a blowjob for an Aku and then like the next person and she would just like there was this Micronesian uh, hooker that had like two teeth like, I kid you not, she had, like, one on each side, which the crew told me was, like, made for speed. Whatever the fuck that meant. But basically, they'd have this long line of the crew. Like, after hours, they would take their Aku up, put it in the back, again, either in the trunk with no ice or in this big cooler in the trunk of this Monte Carlo with no ice. And they'd get their blowjob. She'd have a full uh, truckload of, of skipjack tuna, and she'd go on her way. So, like, the... The crew, I used to think, before I learned this, I thought they were getting all excited about eating the Aku, but they were able to trade it. I have a ridiculous story that I'm going to spare you guys that spurred from from that with one particular crew guy that I'm definitely going to write down because it's just such a legendary story. But So that's, you know, the Lizard Woman and Aku Girl uh, are the only things that I've ever seen that are close to a lizard person, and they both worked the... The docks, uh, not the water. Uh, I UFO story? Eh, I don't know. I've seen some weird stuff at night. Some really weird stuff at night. Um, but part of that is we have all kinds of military stuff out here. We have drones that fly over us all the time. Um, they've got a drone base out of Kauai. So we get these things that we see weird shit all the time. I don't think they're ne- like from another planet but we see drones and all kinds of weird stuff on a regular basis my friend uh rest in peace fisho 
swore on his life that he uh, saw a UFO that like came down to the water and put like this straw just above the water and uh, it like sucked up like ocean water and he said it like did this for like 45 minutes and then flew away he swore up and down on his life that he witnessed that and it was a pretty straight shooter no bullshit kind of guy he was rough as guts but it's pretty straight shooter I don't know what he saw that day but he swore and believed that story up and down so I'm not going to say it didn't happen I've just never personally thought I've seen anything out at sea that was alien I do have a crazy story when I was a kid where I truly believe I saw a UFO but not out at sea and I'll spare you guys that story because I don't want my credibility to go totally to hell Captain Big Jim OBX underscore Captain underscore BJ I'm sure that has nothing to do with the Micronesian Aku girl. I'm sure that BJ refers to Big Jim. He wants to know what my two favorite lures are and if I prefer a single hook or a double hook for blue marlin fishing. And he says I'm not allowed to use a Moldcraft lure as my favorite lure. Well, the wide range is a great lure. Let's be honest. They're idiot proof. You can run them on the back of a wave, top of a wave, front of a wave. They get railed. Um, at this time, my favorite marlin lure has to be an XL Beauty from Aloha Lure. I catch marlin everywhere around the world, uh, particularly big marlin, big blacks, big blues, on the XL Beauty because it just is an absolute champ in the rough. I spend a lot of my time in the rough, and it runs great in the calm. Uh, that is one of my favorite lures for catching big fish, hands down. That thing is just a monster. Um, I love the XL Beauty. Uh, another great lure uh, that's in that category, um, but has a harder time in the rough, uh, unless you're, you pin it down, um, is the uh, Smash Bait, also by Aloha Lures. I love that lure. Um, I love that lure, particularly when it's flat. You get that big molding, like a big kind of that big wedge that big wave over it where just if you get it perfect uh where it, it we have like a tube it will be popping but it almost when it's perfect it will hold like a mound like a big mound of water on the front that it's like pushing like it's pushing a mound of water when you get it doing that that thing gets railed but what my other second favorite lure actually would be uh for marlin is a bullet or a jet um small uh it goes back to that uh easy to get i think an important part of of marlin fishing although i love lures that are erratic for getting a bite what i think is super important like some of those cup face ones that go back and forth you'll get the fucking sickest bite you've ever seen but the hookup ratio a lot of times sucks because the thing's moving all over the place anyone that's watched enough marlin can know that sometimes even when you're going in a straight line they have an incredibly hard time getting it in their mouth so when you factor in the thing going back and forth and the speed of the boat uh, a lot of those erratic lures don't have a great hookup ratio so i like stuff that runs straight and is easy for a fish uh to get down so my other lure uh would be uh, lure makers would probably cringe on this either a bullet um 
or, or, or a good old Jethead. Jethead doesn't get much credit outside of Hawaii, but my friends, I have caught lots and lots and lots of blue marlin and big blue marlin on just a good old chrome jet, uh, $12 out of Korea. I know that makes a lure maker go, ugh, but it's true. Uh, jets are absolutely deadly on meat fish, and we catch a lot of marlin on them. Uh, good bullets, uh, good bullets that meet that category. Uh, also, run straight, easy to grab. Um, uh, Aloha Lures, uh, Deep Six, legendary lure. Um, Sumoto, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, lures. Um, I'm pretty sure the T is silence. Again, not awesome with names. Uh, he makes some beautiful bullets. I've been running one recently. Um, only problem I've had with his lures lately is that as soon as I get it out, the fucking thing keeps getting chopped by Ono, so it's becoming a skirt project, which is good, meaning it gets bit. Um, I've been waiting. I've had a few nice bites on that one. Uh, that style of lure runs just kind of what I'm talking about, easy to grab. Um, I really like his stuff. Uh, I've been talking with him a lot lately. He's been sending me over uh, some different, different stuff that he does. He makes some beautiful lures. Uh, he's on Instagram as well if you're not following him. I really enjoy his social media. He's got great content. Um, I feel like his lure selection falls kind of in, in in my life a little bit where I'm a commercial fisherman, but I love sport fishing. He's got a lot of guys that are pulling lures on his page that are uh, commercial fishermen. Um, and they love trolling as well. Uh, I think sometimes in certain places, there's a huge divide between a commercial fisherman and a sport fisherman, but in Hawaii, there's a lot of carryover. Um, I found that with sponsors uh, that a lot of people don't think that a commercial fisherman can enjoy sport fishing and they think sport fishing are totally against commercial fishing, which I think is ludicrous. There's a lot of carryover uh, in between, but uh, you know, I, I think you see it a little bit with some of the rain gear companies and things like that as well. A lot of sport fishermen wear rain gear. Um, but you know, commercial fishermen live in it. So I think to think that there isn't any carryover is just kind of ridiculous. So anyways, definitely check him out. Uh, his stuff is really nice as well. Uh, Eric at Aloha Lures, love that guy as well. He is Aloha Lures International, but he doesn't have much social media presence, uh, but he does have great stuff. Uh, he's a little bit more on Facebook. You can also check out Eric uh, Michael Rusnick on Facebook, that's easy, easy E, great guy. Uh, both those guys, check out their lures, really great stuff. Um, I got sent a lure from Barella, I hope I'm saying that last name as well, Chris Barella. Uh, I'm not sure if it's his wife, girlfriend, or sister uh, that sent me a uh, head on his behalf on this last trip. Uh, beautiful lure, looks like a flying fish. If you could check out his page as well, um, his stuff looks really nice, like uh, um, really nice hard finish, beautiful lures. And that's the other thing, guys. You know, there's so many great lure makers out there. Uh, you know, you don't have to be so, most of those guys get along. You don't have to be so dead set that just one lure works. Every lure has its day. Every style has its way. The little tweaks, like I, I'm, I'm not so dead set that, Oh, he's, oh, that guy sucks. Like, you'll hear some people say, oh, that guy's lure sucks. That guy's stuff is great. 
you know, a lot of great lure makers out there, uh, a lot of guys making uh, different stuff, and sometimes it's those little tweaks. Uh, some beautiful stuff out there too, Tantrum. Uh, he makes a beautiful bullet. I don't own one. I remember talking to Nick at one point, and when he had them, he was all out of them. I think that probably speaks to the fact that he has a hard time. And all these guys, I think all these guys have a kind of a hard time keeping a lot of stock uh, on shelf because if you make really nice lures, um, there is a demand for them. All these guys make beautiful stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, support all lure makers. And uh, a lot of great stuff out there. Um, another thing, and, and, and you probably have found this already, you know, a lot of the lure makers you want to work with, the people that will take the time to talk to you about uh, how they run it, the application they run it, that goes a long way for me because I know that you got to deal with a lot of inquiries that don't go anywhere, but the people, again, and it's like what I was talking about in the beginning about, uh, you know, teaching people the right way. I think the effort and the energy that you put into your lures and your love for your lures uh, results in fish. I think the time that a lure maker puts into educating a person who's trolling a lure uh, goes into what you catch. I'm such a firm believer that the luck is created by the effort we put in. And Marlin Fishing has this just mystical thing about it, whether you want to believe it or not, that the energy you put in is the energy you get out. And I firmly believe that. And no, most of the customers will not see the long hours. They won't see behind the scenes. They will not see that. But the people that are involved know that. And the end result, the end result, uh, it shows that. And so, although it's not seen every day, when you count the runs on the board, the effort does pay off. And so it's worth going the extra mile in my opinion, and everything fishing, the details count. And um, yeah, guys, that's about all I've got for questions right now. I also wanna wrap this up because I'm gonna be very close to being out of range soon. And I'd hate for this not to post after going through all that. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I will see you guys uh, shooting to be in right before the 4th of July weekend again and uh, get in there. I'm gonna be doing some tournament fishing on the benchmark. Uh, with some of my favorite guys that come in and fish uh, out of the Carolinas and uh, looking for a little bit of debauchery, hopefully a few more big fish. And uh, yeah, guys, best of luck until we talk again. Tight lines, Captain K. All right. Aloha. As always, guys, if you're enjoying the Vicious Cycle podcast, please like review and follow us on whatever platform you're listening also if you've been enjoying my book vicious cycle whiskey women and water please leave a written review on amazon it means a lot to me especially with a couple of the gnarly one star man hating reviews i've gotten recently let's try and combat that as much as possible unless of course you're one of those man hating people that left one of those reviews then uh, please don't leave any more reviews uh, also want to touch base one more time and remind you guys about the Vicious Cycle Whiskey, Women, and Water sweepstakes that's happening. If you are a book reader of mine or even if you are not, you can still win a chance to go fishing with me and the legendary Captain Kevin Nakamaru out of Kona, Hawaii aboard the Northern Lights. 
Uh, it's a three-day fishing trip, uh, five-night stay at the Sheridan, uh, including your flights from the mainland, uh, from North America. Uh, the, if you look at the Kenton Gear blogger page or on my Instagram page, you'll find it posted up more than once. Uh, you might just have to click on a few of those photos. Uh, you can simply uh, join my uh, list on my website, which is whiskeywomenandwater.com. Sorry, no, no and, just whiskeywomenandwater.com. Uh, the easiest way to join is you can just be put on our mailing list and that will, uh, that will give you a chance to win. Uh, there are a total of 54 prizes uh, being given out, included uh, swag, t-shirts, hats. Uh, we've got three packages for the most creative entry using the book. Uh, the most important part, and you'll see on the rules, is you just got to make sure you have the hashtag viciouscyclebook www uh, the reason that is is that the winners will be selected by a third party uh, because I know so many people that are entering this contest I've decided to stay completely out of it um, because I don't want there to be anyone say oh he knows that person well if someone I know ends up winning it well then it will be 100% out of my control and good on them uh, I just want to say another great thing about our sponsor Northern Lights uh, we get a lot, a lot of people that contact me about, hey, my family's going on vacation. Who should I go fishing with in Kona White? Now, there are lots of great fishermen, and lots of them are my friends, and I have so many good things to say about all of them. But the truth is, and how I came to work with Kevin, is that again and again, I kept finding myself uh, sending people to Kevin. And the reason that is, is that we get contacted. Some people say, hey, you know, I just, I'd like to catch a couple fish or, oh, I'd like to catch a marlin. The thing is, Kevin's not just a great marlin fisherman. He's not just a great tuna fisherman. He's a great everything fisherman. And he's an all-around great guy. And so uh, I found myself sending people like family to Kevin. And I thought, this is the guy that I want to work with for this promotion. And so uh, you think about going to Kona, Hawaii, I highly recommend going with Kevin. Um, you can follow Kevin at uh, Hawaii Fishing um, on Instagram and uh, uh, Northern Lights. Uh, if you if you Google anything on the internet and put Northern Lights Fishing Kona Hawaii, uh, you're going to find his website, and you will just see that this man has the runs on the board. He's done it all. He's caught giant ones in Australia, giant ones in Madeira, uh, big bluefin tuna on the East Coast, Bimini, and more than that. He's got the runs on the board in Kona, Hawaii. He's an absolute legend, great fisherman, and so very proud to be partnering up with him, and I highly recommend him if you are looking for a charter and you're coming to Hawaii. So again, thank you very much, everybody. Please leave those reviews, and uh, for those of you that reached out to me, left a nice comments, uh, messages, it's not lost on me. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, and aloha.